From the University of Kentucky, it's Long Story Short, A Brief History of History. I'm Mason Passamonti. The second Monday in October is highly contested. Some believe Columbus should be recognized and celebrated for sailing the blue in 1492. Others believe his voyages resulted in less of a discovery and more of an occupation. Columbus was one of the many who were exploring and colonizing in the 15th century. What made explorers set sail? And what made them get off the boat? Was it gold, spices, slaves, beer? Or something less tangible? Long Story Short meets today with historian Eric Myrup to navigate between myth, imagination, and prophecy. So this idea of exploration and conquering and settling and taming is very much a big part of the narrative that you're taught in Florida as a young student. And so I've always wondered what made them get off the boat? What made them, well, first of all, what made them get on the boat and then get off the boat? What made those explorers set sail? What were they looking for? Well, I don't know that we'll ever be able to answer that adequately in terms of what's going on in somebody's head, like a Columbus, but we can use all sorts of things to try to get at it. And in the case of Columbus, we have you know uh, remnants of a journal that he kept. Uh, we've got uh, remnants of a, a letter that he sent uh, describing what he saw in that first voyage and so forth. And we've got you know his own attempts to create a legacy for himself. Towards the end of his life, he compiles a book. It, he never finishes it. It was called the Book of Prophecies. And really, what it is is it's a bunch of just random things, medieval church writers, uh, scriptural passages, all sorts of things. And him compiling all of this together with his own preface, where he tries to you know explain the significance of what he himself had set out to do and why it was important. And uh, these are the kinds of things we can use in the case of a Columbus to try to get at that, what's going on in the man's head. And of course, you're going to see things in different sources that are going to point you in different directions. Um, so in terms of Columbus himself, I'll, we can share some of the, 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 the cool things in terms of what's written from the time period. But Columbus himself comes out of a, a, a really kind of Portuguese world of the, the 15th century. And over the course of the 15th century, the Portuguese had made their way down the coasts of Africa. They'd made their way into the Atlantic, had settled the islands of Madeira, uh, the Azores. They, they, they land on Cape Verde, uh, the Cape Verde Islands, Cabo Verde, as you'd say today in Brazil. And uh, so the Portuguese had extended what was really a kind of commercial trade-based system. And I'm not even going to use the word empire. I don't know if you could call it an empire as we would conceive of an empire today. It's just a loose grouping of settlements on the coasts of Africa expanding out into the Atlantic. On the coast of Africa, you're going to trade. You've got locals there you can trade with. You're going to barter for gold. You're going to barter for slaves. It's out of this that we'll eventually get the great Atlantic slave trade of you know, later centuries. Uh, in other places, the, the islands, the Atlantic islands, places like Madeira. There's nobody on Madeira. It's uninhabited. There's nobody there. What the Portuguese do is they'll eventually bring sugar cane from uh, the Mediterranean, and they'll create sugar plantations. Now, when you say the Atlantic, you're meaning they're still relatively close to Europe oh, and yeah. Africa. We're, we're not... We're not crossing the Atlantic by okay. any means at this point. So Although it's, it's a distance. It's so they're distance. exploring, but relatively close to home. 
well, a by the time, term. I mean, rel- relatively close to land. Okay. How is that? Because uh, by the time you get down to the coast of Africa, by the late 16th century, you're going to be rounding, or the late 15th century, late 1400s, uh, but before Columbus sails, you're going to round the Cape of Good Hope. Now, so, you're talking thousands of miles, but you, you, you've kept yourself relatively close to land that you know is already there. Africa is known. The Europeans have known about Africa for millennia. Okay. Uh, Asia is known. The Europeans have known about Asia for millennia. There are land connections here. There are the stories of Marco Polo. Uh, Columbus says, of course, I can do what the Portuguese have been trying to do. They've been trying to go around the Cape of Good Hope, journeying east to get to Asia, rounding Africa, if you will. And it would give you an alternate route to Asia uh, where you don't have to deal with the Mediterranean, you don't have to deal with uh, the people that control the land-based route to India, for example, or to China. And so the Portuguese know this, they're taking you know, a way that they believe is a, a way to do that. Columbus comes out of this world. Uh, there are lots of Venetians, there are lots of uh, Genoese, others, uh, from the Mediterranean that are based out of Lisbon during this period of time over the course of the 15th century. Lisbon is a logical stopping off point if you want to go from the Mediterranean to Northern Europe in terms of trade and so forth. Uh, so there's a lot of these people. Columbus would be one of them. And there's all sorts of stories. Many of them are probably apocryphal. There's a, there's a very uh, sketchy kind of story that uh, he shipwrecked off the coast of Portugal and swims to the shore. Think kind of Indiana Jones, the third movie here, off the coast, the Portuguese coast. Um, we have no idea exactly how he ends up into this Portuguese world, but he will make the journey probably carrying uh, sugar uh, back and forth between Madeira and Europe. He'll marry uh, the daughter of the Portuguese governor of Madeira. Uh, he, we know that he sails to some of these Portuguese settlements on the coast of Africa. Uh, this is the world that he came out of. And you say, why did they make their journeys? Well, Columbus, you've got these notions of trade, this Portuguese trading world that he comes out of. When he comes to what we know is the New World, he assumed he was in Asia. Uh, What does he do? He leaves behind a contingent of men who are going to trade with the locals, and then he's going to come back with more. This is the exact model that you'll see among the Portuguese on the coast of Africa. Uh, Now, that being said, he's journeying for Spain. He's sailing for Spain. He's accompanied by a bunch of, you know, Spanish sailors, and in time, as he makes more of these voyages, he makes four voyages total, and the Spanish begin to establish themselves in the Caribbean. They have very different ideas than Columbus. They are not Portuguese. They don't come out of this Portuguese world. Many of them are the second sons of aristocrats. They want to create a feudal-based system, as would be seen in Europe, uh, with now uh, what they conceived of as Indians, people from India, as their slaves or as their, their peasants serfs, if you will. And this is a very different model uh, of empire, if you will, that comes in conflict. And eventually Columbus will be sent back to Europe in chains uh, as, you know, the locals, the local Spanish he's brought with him have, you know, over time become frustrated with his ideas and they rebel. Now, trade then is one motivation far more, I would argue, is going on in the, you know, the minds of the medieval mind of Columbus than just that. Well, it sounds like I mean, you're talking about he sort of does some self-promotion and marketing uh, towards the end of his life, writing these books, and he has these journals, and uh, reflecting on his journeys and prophecies, great things that he did. So it sounds to me that there's obviously some personal 
aggrandizement that's going into this. But it also sounds like what you're describing to me is that being an explorer was sort of a, a career choice in a way. It, 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 he wasn't the only one that was doing this. And that you could potentially kind of, um, along with potentially other jobs or careers, you could say, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be an explorer. I'm gonna see what's out there. Although he wasn't necessarily, it sound, from what you're telling me, not exploring for the sake of exploring. He had a specific goal in mind and sort of um, didn't end up where he thought he was going to. No, and to his dying day, he didn't realize his mistake. Really? Uh, yeah, he, he thinks he is in Asia. He is, you know, he's bound by this idea. So, so, so the, to me, that's an incredible irony that we celebrate this moment of quote unquote discovery, um, although in modern times that's sort of come to be negotiable as whether or not what he really discovered. But so Columbus interacting with the quote unquote new world, and he never knew he did. He never saw his actions in the way that we see them. No, he's he's a man of very fixed expectations, and so he expects to arrive in Asia. He stumbles upon these lands. What is the first thing? Well, in his journal, he describes the people that he sees, and he tells us they're docile. He tells us that they uh, that they're they're friendly. They trade with the Europeans for beads and things. In fact, he even tells us he has to kind of pull his men back and say, "You can't take advantage of these 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 people." But it, it, by the same token, he sees them as kind of barbaric. Now he's looking for the subjects of a great king in Asia, and this couldn't be them. And so he, what does he do? He just keeps journeying west uh, initially. So he's, you know, he lands in the Bahamas somewhere. We don't know exactly where. Lands in the Bahamas, uh, names the island San Salvador, and there's a San Salvador in the Bahamas. But you know, people question whether that's the original San Salvador, various islands make the claim. But uh, he keeps going west, he stumbles upon Hispaniola, he makes his way, to, or he stumbles first on Cuba, then comes back to Hispaniola. Um, but you know, he's expecting to find signs of kingship, signs of what he would conceive of as civilization. Just keep journeying west, you've got to be getting closer. And he even tells us in his journal, he journeys further west and he finds a, a group of people with a king, he, he thinks, oh, I'm getting closer and so forth. Um, people at the time, of course, would with time, as the you know decades passed, come to question what Columbus had found. And, and very quickly, people come to realize within you know a decade that he's not where he thinks he is, that this is something new. This is where we get, of course, the term new world. But uh, Columbus is a man of fixed expectations. Las Casas, Bartolome de Las Casas, was a Spaniard who lived during really the, the, the same period of time. His father journeyed on Columbus's second voyage, and he would go to the New World and uh, live in Hispaniola for a time. He eventually becomes this missionary, but he's initially a conquistador. But his family had connections to uh, Columbus, and uh, he will take Columbus's original journal of his voyage, and Las Casas will summarize portions of it and quote from portions of it directly. And it's from this edited source, if you will, that we have you know, our remaining sense of his voyage because the original journal, it's lost. Nobody knows where it is. And Las Casas will describe, will describe kind of what Columbus was like. And I want to read you 
Las Casas, the man who's editing this, if so you will. So what, what are you reading to us from? This is uh, from uh, a history that uh, Bartolome de Las Casas wrote. Okay. And here he's describing Christopher Columbus. He says, it is a wonder to see how when a man greatly desires something and strongly attaches himself to it in his imagination, he has the impression at every moment that whatever he hears and sees argues in favor of that thing. And that, you know, in a sentence, is uh, the mindset of a Christopher Columbus, but maybe not all that different than the mindset of, uh, you know, people today well, with fixed expectations. So we started off talking about we imagine what he, what Christopher Columbus looked like, and now you're talking about Columbus imagining his expectations, where he was, what he had found, and sort of allowing that imagination to sort of inform his reality at what point at what point do we do at what point does his discovery of the new world become sort of the reality of what has made what we identify as being North America today because you're saying at some point he thought he had discovered Asia he died thinking that he had discovered Asia and then we realized that maybe he didn't within a decade or two later. How does he go from thinking that he discovered Asia to being credited as being the discoverer of the new world in North America? So that's something in my mind that completely exceeds him in his life or the period that he came out of it all. Um, we were looking at Wikipedia there a minute ago. Where did Columbus Day come out of? And it says Colorado started celebrating it in 1906 became a federal holiday in 1937, and then it says, but people in colonial America kind of celebrated it, you know, earlier and formally. Now, that's Wikipedia. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But, you know, in terms of the North America question, that's really a, a question for somebody that does, for example, 19th century U.S. history. And uh, my sense, again, I'm a historian of the 17th, the 18th century Portuguese colonial world. I do the Iberian world more generally. Uh, my sense is that it, it comes out of, you know, people in a, ultimately in an independent United States trying to find their founding fathers, if you will, and create a kind of a, a narrative, a, a, a myth about how a people comes into being. And ultimately then you get Columbus in what are today United States textbooks. There's no United States when he's sailing. There's, you know, there's connections he had to England perhaps, but there's, you know, the story of the founding of the United States is a very, very different story that comes out of, you know, a different period of time, uh, decades, decades, decades later, century later, practically, for all practical purposes, and the story of, you know, the English coming to what is today North America. Columbus sails for Spain, he is in the Caribbean, and he's in South America. And he's an Italian. And he's a, well, he's, as we would conceive, he's Genoese. There's no right. Italy in this point well, in time. Well, there's no Italy yet. So. And there's no Spain at this point in time for what, for, for, for what it's worth. You've got a series of kingdoms. Well, Dr. Meyer, if you're really just chattering a lot of our myths that we have here, you're really destabilizing everything. <laughs> so, but that's refreshing because that means that we're sort of trying to get some context here. So, despite Columbus's fixed expectations, our expectations about what was happening around Columbus isn't necessarily fixed on the reality of what it was. He's a uh, not quite Italian. He's 
Genoese. He's sailing. Well, you know, in terms of, of his background, just to give you a sense, he's yes. he's, a, he's a he's an ambiguous sort of man. Uh, people all all across Europe, over time, have tried to claim Columbus. So you'll find people. You can find them publishing on the internet today. You can find them publishing things elsewhere that claim Columbus was really Portuguese. Uh, I found people claiming Columbus was a secret Sephardic Portuguese Jew. Uh, some in Spain have claimed that Columbus was really Spanish. Uh, and of course, the Italians have claimed Columbus. And, you know, and it, there's no Italy at that point in time, but you, you've got all sorts of people claiming Columbus. Uh, you've got all sorts of people claiming to represent him in, in you know, portraits of Columbus. Uh, and it even goes all the way to his death. Uh, different places <laughs> claiming to hold the relics, the bones of Christopher Wait, so Columbus. We don't, we don't, we don't really, even know for sure where he's buried. But we do know that he lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know he lived. Okay. So, so this is very exciting in that there's a lot of invention and imagination that goes into this. And I think that for me, what I'm hearing is that going back to that moment where Columbus imagined that he could do this. He could do what other people have been attempting to do but not been able to do it. He was going to find the route to Asia. And I think for me, again, that's the most exciting part of the story, whether he, where, whatever his origins were, whatever he looked like, whoever he was sailing for, the idea that he imagined that he could go out there and explore it no, is, is very exciting that he was going to go into the unknown. And I guess that's, that's really what fascinates me, is what was driving him to go into the unknown. Well, you read his journal and so forth, you get a sense of trade, among other things. And again, he comes out of this Portuguese commercial world. You read the things that he writes, especially later in his life, but also scattered throughout his, his journal and other things, you'll find, of course, a lot of notions in terms of religion. The Book of Prophecies. This, oh. is, uh, this is from the preface to this book of prophecies that I, I think I referred to earlier, where he's compiling all sorts of things towards the end of his life, and he's trying to figure out what is his legacy. So how old is he at this point? You say it's towards the end of his life, well, but... We don't even know for sure when he was born, so... Again, Dr. Myrup, you're really... Yes. You're disrupting our reliance on facts and, and years and things. But he did... So uh -huh. 1492, can we rely on that? In terms of the New World? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, You're good. good. You're good. Thank you. Um, listen to what he writes here. Uh, he's, you know, dedicating this book to royalty and so forth. This is the beginning, and he's trying to, again, make sense of what he has done. He writes, Most Christian and very exalted princes, the reason which I have for the restitution of the Holy Sepulcher to the Holy Church militant is the following. And he goes on. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the restoration of Jerusalem. He's talking about the notions of crusades and taking back the Holy Land and specifically where Christ was crucified in the Holy Land, taking that back, uh, you know, from Muslims, from Jews, from, you know, he's talking about notions of a Christian crusade. And his idea is that you're going to use all the wealth uh, that uh, the kings and queens of, of Europe receive, specifically Aragon and Castile receive on account of what he's discovering in the trade system that he's creating in order to use it for a crusade to take back Jerusalem. But uh, he continues, and uh, in this he talks about, you know, why he sets out to do what he sets out to do. 
Can you trust what he's writing? I don't know. That's the question you have to ask. But uh, listen to this. Continues. Most exalted sovereigns. At a very early age, I entered upon the sea navigating, and I have continued doing so until today. The calling in itself inclines whoever follows it to desire to know the secrets of this world. Forty years are already passing, which I have employed in this manner. I have traversed every region which up to the present time is navigated. I have held intercourse and conversation with learned men, ecclesiastical and secular, Latins and Greeks, Jews and Moors, and with many of the other sects. The Lord was very propitious to this my desire, and for it I was endowed by him with an intelligent spirit. He made me very skillful in seamanship. He gave me a sufficient knowledge of astrology and also of geometry and arithmetic. And he gave me an ingenious mind and hands skillful in designing the sphere, and upon it the cities, rivers, mountains, islands, and harbors, all in their proper situation. During this time I have seen and in seeing have studied all writings, cosmography, histories, chronicles, and philosophy, and those relating to other arts, by means of which our Lord made me understand with a palpable hand that it was practicable to navigate from here to the Indies and inspired me with the will for the execution of this navigation. Um, and he goes on from there and he starts citing scripture and medieval authors and so forth. And he's saying basically, I was chosen by God to make this journey and uh, to discover this route to Asia. And he sees himself very much as fulfilling prophecy the book of prophecies. Um, I tease my students, I say, uh, I, re I have them read this, and I say, what does that sound like? He's the chosen one. Uh, he's, he's some sort of medieval version of Harry Potter. <laughs> the chosen one. He just doesn't have the scar. Um, anyway, that's him trying to make sense. And again, as you say, put himself on a, on a grand scale. There are all sorts of ironies here in terms of this. Uh, you go to school today and they tell you, uh, Christopher Columbus thought the world was round and everybody else thought that it was flat. And I remember sitting in class in first grade and they told us why and how he could see the ship sailing and he'd see the top of the mast first and then he'd see more of it and then he'd see the whole ship as they sailed into the shore and he's like, it's not flat, it's round. Um, anybody who was anybody that was learned during this era knew that the world was round. The question wasn't its shape. And I say round, roundish, how is that? Because he actually said it was shaped kind of like a pear. But uh, roundish. There wasn't a question of whether the world was round or not. The question was how big was it? And he made mathematical calculations. He says here, the Lord blessed me, he says, with a arithmetic, a knowledge of arithmetic and all sorts of things so that I could do this. But he made calculations and he figured that the world was relatively small and that you could successfully sail, leaving basically Europe, sailing west, and you could arrive in Asia in an amount of time that was practicable, that you could do it without running out of food. Um, other scholars, for example, the mathematicians in the Portuguese court said he is nutty. And they said, no, it is much, much larger than he thinks it is. Uh, there's no way he's going to make that journey and is going to survive. And, of course, the irony here is that Columbus was completely wrong on his math. The world was much larger than he thought it was. Uh, luckily for him, and he got lucky in all sorts of ways, luckily for him, uh, it, it, he, he stumbled upon what is, we know today as the New World. Uh, first the Caribbean, later he'll, he'll outline part of the shores of South America on uh, one of his later voyages. But uh, 
there was a whole new landmass there. Well, maybe there was something to his being the chosen one. And maybe it wasn't luck, but divine intervention. So, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? The story of, uh, of, of a man trying to make, self, make, make sense of himself and his place in the world at the end of his life. Which is somebody that even today people could in some manner perhaps relate to. Um, but a lucky man. When is he sailing initially? September, October-ish is when he makes the journey in 1492. It's hurricane season. I was just thinking, that is a really <laughs> bad time to be in the Atlantic. So, yeah. But, well, thank you so much for talking with us today about exploring and imagining and um, trying to live up to your potential through setting sail for New World. Well... It's, it's, a, it's a lovely story, and there's all sorts of things you can do with it. When I teach my undergrads, uh, we read Columbus's journal, we read parts of his book of prophecies, and we read Isaac Asimov, uh, The Discovery of New Worlds. And uh, there's all sorts of ways you can apply the past and try to contextualize it in different ways and make sense and interpret it. And uh, you can do that by looking at the material from the period, but you can look at how discovery is represented in all sorts of different contexts. And uh, like I said, we even use science fiction. So students at the University of Kentucky are excited to learn more about this. Um, what classes are you offering in the spring? So uh, this next spring I'll be offering the, the history of Brazil, History 564. I offer it religiously uh, every spring and I'll offer my Atlantic World Survey where we do a little bit of Columbus actually. That's History, uh, history 208. But uh, come take a class. They're a lot of fun. Thank you. Long story short, thanks Dr. Eric Myra for talking with us today. Exploring and imagining is an intrinsic part of human nature. We've been investigating since the moment we conceived the horizon as a destination, and yet the questions we ask and the possibilities we imagine never diminish. If you want to know more about exploring the Atlantic world, come find Dr. Myra on the 17th floor of Patterson Office Tower. Long Story Short is a joint production of the Department of History and the Arts and Sciences Hive. Today's show was produced by Dara Vance and hosted by myself, Mason Passamonti. <laughs>